going to be in Luke chapter 2 together this morning. Yes, I said this morning with no apology and no correction. I don't know what your Christmas tradition in your household, maybe growing up, maybe what it is currently as we raised five children, we found a little bit of a Christmas rhythm. December was a special month. We had a variety of things that, uh, that we did to make this uh, a special holiday. Uh, one of the small, maybe less important components uh, were the movies that we watched. We got a little rhythm of Christmas movies that, as a family, we enjoyed watching. Uh, one of them that hit the favorite list was Miracle on 34th Street. Maybe you're familiar with it. I don't doubt many of you are and have seen the story uh, it, is a, it is an account about believing in Christmas. This one more specifically, believing in Santa Claus, which tends to be a theme in a lot of Christmas movies, a challenge of faith to believe. And in this particular movie, a young girl named Susan, who is being raised by her no-nonsense mother, who does not permit her daughter to give any room for fairy tales. But the daughter is caught in some tension when she is struck by the authenticity of a man by the name of Chris Kringle. And his authenticity seems to come through and she begins to question and struggle and she is torn a little bit as to what she should and what she should not believe. And so the movie is really about making a believer out of young Susan. And the aim of the story is that, and the moral of the story is more than just, it's just a little childhood fantasy that might be harmless, but actually, it's for everyone's good. Believing in Christmas is for your good. It's for our good. It's for the good of the whole of society. So believing in Christmas actually makes the world a better place. Where that story ends, our culture that we live in picks up that theme. Believing in something is good and even necessary. It's how things get better. It starts with faith. It starts with believing. It's how you achieve your goals. It matters less to most what specifically you believe in, although the one thing that our culture instills in our thinking very dramatically is that one of the most important things is that you believe in yourself. It starts there. You must believe in yourself. So faith now has some sort of force that can be picked up by anyone and used for anything. But our series is not about believing in Santa, and it's not about believing in yourself but it is very much about faith. What you believe, in whom you believe. Friends, this is really the most important thing about you, your faith, what you believe in, whom you put your trust in. This is really, this is the most important thing about you. Okay, regardless of your personality, regardless of your circumstances, regardless of how you will convince me that you are hardwired this way, this is the kind of person you are, this is how you were made, this is what you were meant to do, regardless of the circumstances, the difficulties, the trauma, the highlights, the prosperity, the blessing, 
regardless of anything and everything that has taken place in your life, the thing that is most important about you is your faith. Believing in Christmas is the title of the series, which means our belief, our trust, our hope, and our source for change rests on the main character of the Christmas story, the Christ child that was born. In our text, we're going to look at a man by the name of Simeon. We have just a few verses about this man called Simeon that we'll read together in just a moment. He is one of many persons in the New Testament that the Lord has orchestrated to use to help direct our faith in the right direction, to show us what it means to have faith, to show us precisely where our faith ought to rest. Let's read our text together. I'm in Luke chapter 2. We'll read verses 25 to 35 together. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him and had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents, parents of Jesus here, brought in the child, Jesus, to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles, and for glory to your people, Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him, and Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts, may be revealed. I'd like to look this morning with you at Simeon's faith and the object of it and the reality of it. The hope and the aim is that we will all leave today with a secured faith in the right place, the right kind of faith in the right place. And it's important for your life, not just in the broad sense, are you a Christian? Do you trust in Christ? Your faith, my faith, is a functioning, working function of our soul in every aspect of life. How you think, how you respond, how you treat people, your marriage, your parenting. What kind of neighbor are you? What kind of worker are you? All these things are connected to your faith, this faith, genuine faith, faith in the right place, faith in the right person, generates the goodness of God in and through us and plays out in all of life. So let's look at this 
example that the Lord has given us in Luke chapter 2. First point is the evidence of Simeon's faith. He's one of several witnesses that point us to Christ in the Christmas story. We actually know very little about Simeon, although many have supposed many things. They presume he's very old. Possibly he was by his statement, Lord, now I can depart in peace. Maybe he was towards the end of his life. We don't know. And the artists have rendered him as a priest in the temple. This is not clear. We don't know it. We don't know his occupation. We really don't know his age. What we do know is what we have been told, and that is about his character. We have been given the evidence of this man's faith. In a sentence, we're told what is more, most important about this man, that he believes in the Lord. It says he was righteous and devout. This describes his character and his disposition of his heart towards the Lord. He behaved well towards others because he trusted what God commanded. He believed God and took God's word seriously and surrendered his thoughts, his words, his actions to them. He was honest. He was compassionate. He was just because he was a man of faith. He was devout. He was devoted to the things of God. Religious duties, temple worship, giving, serving, these were things that were inside this man that compelled him. He was devoted. And he was expectant about God's plan and God's promises. This is really sort of what, what he is known for to us. He was anticipating God was going to come through with his plan. This man had faith. He trusted the promises of God, and he looked forward to what God was going to do. He knew the Lord had promised to send a deliverer, a savior. And so his heart was in a state of expectancy. He knew the day would come. This is a strange but amazing thing about genuine Christian faith. It's a, it is a substance of the soul that enables us to possess what we don't yet have and assures us of things that will still come in the future. We can live in such a state as if already possessing things that we don't yet possess. How do we live? We live by faith. Faith is this functioning substance in our hearts, in our souls, that leaves you in a state of God promised to do something, and I'm so confident and assured that he will, that I'm living in this moment as if I have it all already. Even though I know it's still to come. I have, by faith, a righteousness from Christ for me. I'm not currently all that righteous. I am still struggling with the details of righteousness. I'm supposing most of you are as well. Still, 
I can go through my day and I can find areas. Ah, okay, that's not righteousness. That wasn't right. Oh, the, the impulse, the struggle, the desires, the, the cravings, the waywardness, what, whatever. I find, I was like, okay, that's not whom God has called me to be. That's not who I one day will be. And yet to live by faith, there is some substance in the soul that says, and yet therefore I am right before God in Christ. I'm, I'm possessing something, present tense, right now, that I can see evidence in my life. Okay, it's not yet but how shall I live? I live by faith in the Son of God who gave himself for me. So he has declared over me this right standing because it is a righteousness outside of myself. It is his righteousness imputed to me. And so by faith, I obtain it. I possess it. It is mine, and it will come to pass. Simeon's expectancy, living in that future hope in the present tense, is what he's really known for, and we know that the Holy Spirit was upon him. This is a unique phrase to use for somebody throughout the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit did not just reside with people sort of indefinitely like we have as we're studying the book of Acts. When you're filled with the Spirit, the, the, the Spirit takes up like a permanent residency in the souls of Christians. In the Old Testament, it is spoken of differently, like the Spirit just sort of comes upon you for an opportune time, for a specific task. God puts you in a situation. Oh, in this situation, you will need the Holy Spirit, and so I will put my Holy Spirit upon you for that moment, for that task, for that season, for that job to get accomplished. And here we get a description. The Holy Spirit was upon this man. Genuine faith that has Christ as its object is a work of the Holy Spirit and brings the Spirit to us. Well, the first point is really that what Luke is trying to accomplish here, that it all adds up that Simeon is someone worth listening to. He's a good man. He's an honest man. The Lord is with him, and he trusts the Lord. So if Simeon has something to say, he would be a guy that would be worth listening to and taking seriously what he says. Luke is building up Simeon's credibility as a witness to get our attention because he wants to use Simeon to draw our attention in the right direction. You all know this when you walk by someone and you see them staring up into the sky. If I do this, you might not think anything of it because you know I'm just doing a sermon illustration. There's really nothing up there. But if somebody else started looking up there, and then the third person, and the fourth person, and everywhere you, why? What do you do? You look where they're looking. You almost can't help yourself. You look where they're looking, and that's, what, that's Simeon's role here. Look where Simeon is looking 
Do you see where his eyes are fixed? Do you see what he's looking at? Do you see where his expectation is? He wants to grab your attention and cause your eyes to go the same direction that Simeon's eyes are going. So let's look secondly at the object of Simeon's faith. He was looking for the consolation of Israel. Consolation. Comfort. God's comfort for God's people. That's the consolation that we're talking about. God plans to redeem. God plans to save. God plans to deliver. God plans to comfort his people. An expression of hope that God will act in ways to deliver, to set free, to help, to provide for. He will act in a way that will be your comfort, my comfort. Isaiah 49, sing for joy, O heavens, and exalt, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on the afflicted. This is who God is. He is a comforter. For the Lord comforts Zion, Isaiah 51. He comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her. Thanksgiving and the voice of song. All was not well for Israel at the time that Simeon was alive. Probably wasn't the worst of times for Israel. You know a little bit about Israel's history. They had a 400 years of being enslaved in Egypt with the taskmasters making bricks in the mud pits. It was a miserable time for Israel. But at the time of Luke chapter 2, the Romans were occupying over Israel. Now it was a time of relative peace. Nevertheless, Israel was a nation subjected to another nation. They had overlords. They were not their own. They were not free. And so Simeon is looking for the comfort, for the deliverance, for the saving help from the Lord in these troubled times. I don't know about you, but sometimes I get a little caught up in thinking about the times that we live in and the troubles that we face. I don't know if you struggle with this, but have you ever had this where you find your soul getting a bit discouraged? Like it's, it seems like it's getting so bad out there. There's so much wrong. There's so much rage. And then some of the problems that seem to come to the surface, uh, I mean, when I think about the abortion industry, I just think, how, how deceptive to, to view this as, as a personal right, a personal choice, the taking of a life. How did that come about? And it troubles me. I think, how, how could that be a, a really a, a believable thing? When I think about the, the sex trafficking industry and all the injustice of that, I, I just think about some of these major topics that are like dominating the news and that are taking place in the world today, and I think these are troubling times. And it's hard on my soul when I sit and I ponder these things and I start to go down that path and I'm thinking about them and the, and the trouble of it is and the, the deception and the trauma that's caused in so many lives and the difficulty and the, and the, the, the terrible outcomes for so many people. 
And sometimes I think about my own sanctification. It's quite slow. It's depressingly slow. Why, why can't I grow faster? You, and and why, why am I going over the same lessons? I told you, 33 and a half years I came to this church. I mean, I'm, I'm still battling things that were going on in my heart long before that. When I was five. There's trouble around. There's problems. There's trouble within. It's not always, doesn't always feel like the best of times. And so what? What does a soul do? We look for God's comfort for his people. We have a pull in our hearts for the consolation that God promises to bring. We can easily get caught up in despair. You can easily get caught up in a flurry of anger. But the path of peace is to cry out for God's consolation. Simeon lived for one thing. He had a very short bucket list. Your bucket list the things you are committed to do before you kick the bucket. What are you going to do before you die? Okay, Jacenia jumped out of an airplane, went to Egypt, rode a camel, saw the pyramids. Ron and Tammy did a river cruise in Europe. You've got things on your list. There's things you've done. Maybe you've got things you want to do. Yet, Simeon had a bucket list with one thing on it. I want to see the Lord's Christ before I die. And this was not just something that he made up on his own. This was something that the Holy Spirit assured him would, in fact, take place. God put that in his heart. And so he was living his life with one thing on his list, the one thing that would make his life worth living for. If I see the Lord's Christ before I die, and I have a life well lived, I'm one satisfied man. Was Simeon successful, prosperous, influential? Did he make it? Did he, who, who was, we, we, we have no idea. Was he a complete success? Was he a complete failure? We know nothing about his life. He could have been one. He could have been the other. He could have been all of one and none of the other. We don't know. What we do know is he said, I'm all about one thing and one thing only. I want to see the Lord's salvation. I want to be alive and recognize when God comes through with his promise and the Spirit led him into the temple. And that particular day, that particular time, when Mary and Joseph were bringing their just days-old baby Jesus into the temple to fulfill the customs of the law on that day, and lo and behold, there was Simeon. And he saw that little baby boy. And he took him in his arms. He said, this is it. This is it. He's, he's the one. He's the one. 
This is a glorious day. This is my moment. My life is fulfilled right now because I see him, because I see this child. Third point is the reality of Simeon's faith. Simeon prepares us for suffering. Okay, everything up to this point is all praise and celebration. We got an innocent little baby boy. Everything is sweet. Everything is beautiful. Everything about this story is wonderful. An obedient family, God's comfort to his people, Simeon's faith, expectation, all very positive. You wonder why the guy just couldn't leave well enough alone, but he doesn't. He goes on and he says more because there's a, a combative component to the victory that he was going to bring. He talks about the falling and the rising of many because bringing God's comfort for God's people is not simple or easy. It comes through conflict. It comes through judgment. The comfort, the consolation, that God brings, that God brought, was not easily won. It's sweet, it's glorious, it's wonderful, but to get it, to obtain it, required very combative component for the Savior. You don't march into enemy territory and turn those enemies into friends without some kind of conflict, some kind of fight. The problem is twofold. The enemies themselves don't want to be your friend. And the captain of those enemies don't want you to have them. Okay? Do you understand? That's us. Before we knew the Lord. We are called in the scriptures enemies of God. The reason you weren't a Christian sooner is because you didn't want to be a Christian sooner. Because it wasn't in your heart. And so the Savior has to come in and barge in and rescue hearts like yours and mine that are resistant, that have no desire for it. And he comes in and presents grace and changes us. But we were under the heading of another captain who he wanted us for his prize to go against God. Okay, we were the, we were the prize being fought over. And he didn't want to let us go. So we needed a warrior, a champion, a combatant that was willing to step into this fight and win us. In Luke chapter 2, the Lord, the Savior, is a little baby boy, just, just days old, about as innocent and sweet, cuddly as you can imagine. But there's another picture of Jesus at the end. Let's take a look at that. This is in Revelation chapter 19. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. 
His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. Okay, So we get a picture of this Jesus at the very beginning of his earthly life. Innocent little baby. Cooing. Waving. Smiling at mom and dad. Beautiful. And we have a picture of that same baby at the end of time. Now we've got a warrior on a white horse. A conquering hero who comes back with his clothes dripped, drenched in blood. Because the consolation of Israel was not easily won. It required a battle. And he was the one that stepped into that battle and fought that battle. On the one hand, he shed his own blood. He shed his own blood to purchase you and me to be a part of his family. It's the only way. The only way you and I could be welcomed in. He also fought all the forces of darkness, all the spiritual enemies of God, and defeated all our enemies. This conquering hero on this white horse charges in and wins this battle on our behalf so that he could claim you and me for himself so that we would belong to him. He purchased us with his blood and he won us with defeating all of our enemies. Simeon, holding this little baby, so amazed at the glory that is shown up on the earth, also knows something about this fight, about this battle. And then he turns to Mary specifically and talks to her about her own sorrow. A sword would pierce her soul. Is there a deeper grief than a parent outliving a child? Not sure. And while they took Jesus to crucify him, yeah, his mother was there observing the whole event. Yeah, I can no, we can't imagine this. Well, some of you can. Few of us can appreciate that moment for Mary. Watching one of her children be crucified. But it had to be. It had to be. For our salvation, he had to do it. And he did it. But it was like a sword that pierced his mother's soul. Devastating, but necessary. Simeon wants to make a believer out of you and 
believer out of me. I think Susan finally came around and thought Chris Kringle was the real deal, and that's the end of that story. But your story and my story is a little bit different. It has nothing to do with Santa Claus. And it has nothing to do with about how positively you view yourself. The real aim here is for your heart and for my heart to look where Simeon looked and recognize the glory of God there. This is Israel's consolation. And that consolation spills over like a vine growing over a wall and bearing fruit on the other side. Here come you and I, the Gentiles, the non-Jews, outside this scope, and this gospel begins to spread. This is precisely where we left off our study in the book of Acts, which we will come back to. The outpouring of the Spirit and the gospel comes bounding down in the midst of Jerusalem, and the church is being formed and being built. And what happens next? They scatter, and the gospel begins to move. And on the 4th of July in 1990, Tammy and I walked into a room full of people. That room was filled with people that had experienced the effect and received the same promise that Simeon did. Here we are in this room and most of you in this room as well. Part of that ongoing spread of God's grace, the comfort of God for his people and here it is in our hearts here this morning. Let's stand together. The worship team, come on up. So can I ask you, how's your faith? Or maybe more specifically, where is your faith? In whom is your trust now? Okay, if you're not a Christian, maybe you came in kind of kicking the tires, looking around, wondering, maybe you've got some questions in your heart. Listen, here's the aim. To convince your heart, you directing all your faith, all your hope, all your confidence, all your trust, all your assurance on that little baby that was born that first Christmas because he grew up to be the champion that won your soul and bought your freedom. It's also very possible, and I've been in this situation many times, sitting in a church service where I was a Christian, knew I was a Christian, but somebody asked me, where's my faith? And I realized, ah, my, my path has got me trusting here and trusting there, and my my faith has been shifting a little off the Savior and onto what? My degrees, my ingenuity, my good luck. Setting my hope in different places. Friend, if that's you, this is a perfect moment to just stop and redirect and look where Simeon looked. And fix your gaze where Simeon fixed his gaze because there's nothing Nothing compared to having your soul, your heart, 
resting secure by faith in who Jesus is and what he's done for each one of us. Father, bring it about in each of our hearts. Settle and establish faith in our hearts just like Simeon lived for one thing. May we live to see and know the Savior for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.